Hello everyone and welcome back to Inside Art Scroll, where the books you read and the people who write them come to life. We're joined today by Rabbi Yosef Chaim Golding, the author of Faith Amid the Flames, as well as a longtime Askin, an activist for the from community in many different capacities. Perhaps we'll get into that. So Rabbi Golding, give our viewers a little background into your upbringing, your early years, who influenced you? Whoa. Well, this interview is supposed to be about my father-in-law. So, in short, uh, basically, uh, I was a regular Tarvadas guy, as they say, who Baruch Hashem uh, had a Rebbe by the name of Rebbe Avram Pam, um, who basically in influenced me that whatever I was going to do, uh, with my life, I should be able to look back and feel that I accomplished something. Um, back uh, through Torah Masora courses that I took, um, and then we all of a sudden Jep came into the picture, and Baruch Hashem I had the schus of co-founding Jep Jewish Education Program uh, together with Rabbi Mati Katz. At that time, it was Mati Katz, um, and. From there, I joined the National Office of Agudathis of America uh, back in January of 81. And it was a worldwide ride. And um, Baruch Hashem, we were able to accomplish lots of things in those years. It was around 26 years, uh, including uh, becoming the CEO of the Siume Hashas starting in 1990. Um, it was a lot of fun also. And um, in around 2006, I'm estimating, I believe, um, I became executive director of RCCS, Rofacholm Cancer Society, and Baruch Hashem. It's a tremendous close accomplishment. Um, and these days, I'm doing this, things on my own, Simashas, RCCS, different projects, and I had the opportunity to have, uh, to be able to write this book, something that I discussed with my late father-in-law 20 some odd years ago. And Baruch Hashem, um, the reviews have been way, way, way beyond my expectations. And um, Baruch Hashem, I'm really, really, really happy that, that I did it. I think it's a big schuss for him. And I think more so is the fact that People are finding out about the Kedoshim, what they went through, and how they survived um, in a way that possibly they didn't know before. And um, that, you know, the, the, the sales have been tremendous, but the reviews and the phone calls and the people stopping me, um, I'll tell you, one of my friends, or Bianco Bender from Darke, we worked together in the Agudo office for a short period of time at 5 Beekman Street. And um, he was talking at a wedding, and I snuck up behind him. He didn't see me. And I said to him, Rabbi Bender, stop making so much noise. Some of us are trying to sleep here. He turned around and he says, Golding, I read the book. It should be required reading for every member of Kal yeah, it's a free ad, so, you know, and, and I've gotten calls. Um, Rosh Hashiva, 
David Goldberg of Tells, member of the Mitzvah Gedolei called me up. How to get my phone number? I have no idea. He says he just read the book Rosh Hashiva, and he's going to speak about it at his tshuva drasha before slichas. I mean, things like this I never imagined that 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 was going to happen. Um, and I've gotten lots of calls. Rabbi Avram Chaim Foyer. Uh, son-in-law of Rav Gifter, and was my Rav in Muncie for many years. He called me up. He called and he said, you should not refer to it as a book. It's a Musa Sefer. And um, I've gotten, it just doesn't stop. So Baruch Hashem, um, the sales are great, the reviews are great, and I have some future plans that maybe we'll talk about uh, a few minutes from now. But What's I, interesting but, is yeah. that Growing up myself in the late 80s, 90s, I remember Holocaust books coming out all the time. And I think after that, and correct me if I'm wrong, after that, I think as time has gone on, I think fewer and fewer books on the Holocaust are coming out, maybe because everything's been said or written. Um, and then this book came out. Do you agree with that, that over the last 10, 15 years there aren't as many Holocaust books? And this was kind of... Uh, Kind of an anomaly. Um, there was a time where there were there was an influx um, of such books. Um, I, I I don't really know. You're talking to someone who was born in America, right. whose father was born in America. My father was in the American Army during World War Two. Uh, he didn't go overseas, but he, he was in the army. Um, so I'm so American born, and to me. The whole concept of the Holocaust and, and, and the Nazis, Yemach Shemom, was something that I learned in my later, later teenage years. And Hashem, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, has his sense of humor. And uh, he was Meshadach Mi with the, the daughter of Rabbi Yassel Friedensen. And, you know, it, it, it was a little bit of an intermarriage between... Uh, you know, an American and, 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 and a Hasidic family, and, and Baruch Hashem, uh, it's, 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 we're, we're, we have no complaints. So we're, I wanted to ask you about that. You grew up in Brooklyn. No, right? no? West, west Side oh, west of Manhattan. Side. West, west Side. side. So west you traveled side. to Brooklyn to yeah. go to Tarvadas. Yes. And what did, your, what did your parents do? Oh, what did my parents do? My, my father was in various uh, businesses. The Golding family, although really not connected to us way back, were very big in real estate before, and also Golding Brothers Textiles, before the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Golding family's been in America for... Since before World War I. Uh-huh. So um, um, my father had a, a Glatkusha deli on 86 and Broadway for 11 years, uh, which he hardly stepped into. He had people running it. Uh, he was involved in, 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 in commodities and stocks and things like that. And um, he was nifted very young. And my mother was an American Sadekis who, um, who was, uh, focused her work on chesed, on Beaker Cholem, together with the late Mrs. Khan of Mount Sinai Hospital, who was just nifted. And I was, you know, as, as I said to you, Baruch Hashem, uh, Rav Pam uh, convinced me uh, as I said before, I don't want to repeat, but, you know, do something that, that I'll feel accomplished. As he did, as he did. He mm-hmm. called himself a diamond polisher. He says, we take, 
We Rebbeim, we take raw, uncut diamonds in first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, whatever it is, and we polish them, and we make, and then you look back 40, 50 years later, and you see the Paris of your work. I mean, Baruch Hashem, I mean, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, I don't, uh, you know, but, but again, this interview is not about me. The interview is about, is about my Schwer, who uh, I, I think was an anomaly because he spoke about his experiences in World War II. While you constantly hear many people saying that, oh, they don't talk about it or they refuse to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what's interesting to me. You're a son-in-law, but people who know you and have seen you interact with your father-in-law, Allah Vashalom, and, and, and now you put out a book, you were like a son to him. And, and, and you, you have tremendous admiration for him. When you got married, when the shidduch was read, did you know about Rabbi Yosef Friedensen? Did you know him as the editor of Dossier de Shavar? Did you know that he was kind of a legend in his, in his own way? You're, you're asking very difficult questions. You know, this was supposed to be easy. I, I knew that he was one of the leaders of the Aguda. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that I was involved with JEP back in the early 70s, I uh, produced the first four JEP records, and uh, I actually spoke at uh, an Aguda convention before I was married, and the chairman of the session was Rabbi Yosef Friedensen. Um, and um, I really did, I knew he was one of the heads of the Aguda, I certainly didn't know about his background, you know, his, his, the suffering that he went through. But the thing about Rabbi Yosef Friedensen, my shver, Allah shalom, is that he focused on the positives. He didn't focus on the terrible things and he didn't push about the atrocities. He focused on the positive of Klai Yisrael, of how they reacted with the Kiddush Hashem within the suffering of the Holocaust. And that's why um, many years ago, I said to him, you know, we should write a story about your life. Excuse me. And he said, and I interviewed him. It was in Miami Beach. He had a small apartment that he inherited in Miami Beach. And we sat for, I think it was three nights, two hours each night. So I, I taped him with a cassette tape recorder. Um, what year is this? 70s, 80s? 80s. 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 Um, and I don't, most of the people here don't even know what cassette tape recorders are. It's a cassette. It's a cassette. It, okay. Um, and I put it on tape and I had it transcribed. Um, and it was six hours worth. And a lot of work had to go into it because it wasn't really step by step by step by so step. It wasn't, it wasn't chronolo- chronologically it wasn't that, organized. It, it, needed, it needed a tremendous total rewrite. And so I kept that all, all the time. And mm-hmm. I discussed it with him. And I would do a sample table of contents of what I would do if I wrote, wrote his book. And it never happened. It never happened. It never came to fruition. And then... Um, Around, around six years after his, he was Petir, he was Nifter on Shabbos Zachar. I think the Eng, English year was 2013. It was the year after 
the 2012 CMHS at MetLife Stadium. Um, in fact, he suffered a stroke that night on his way to the, to the CM. Um, he was shown on the video um, uh, where he spoke about the third CMHS that he celebrated upon being released from Buchenwald. Um, and um, I had some time on my hands, and I collected from, I mean, without the help of Mrs. Lichtenstein of, of, of Project Witness, mm -hmm. uh, and I did it, and, and, and Rabbi Avram Birnbaum, and people who wrote and had uh, interviews with him and stories throughout the years. And Some I, of which is included in the book. Uh, most of it is included mm -hmm. in the book. I didn't write, I didn't make up stories in the book. This is him speaking. Right, I which just, is interesting. The book is written in first person, almost yeah. like a memoir, which just wasn't released during his lifetime. It was absolutely, worth, it, absolutely. It was a big discussion whether that should be done that way. Mm -hmm. um, and had you come to the decision to do it the way you did? Because I wasn't there. I didn't make anything up. It's all him. Yes, mm -hmm. I enhanced the English. I put everything into the correct order. Mm -hmm. I, I was more of a, of a master editor than an author. But, uh, and, and, and it worked. And people criticized me at the beginning. It says, how can you write an autobiography? Autobiography must be written by the person who's writing. But it's him. It's all his words. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I don't regret the decision at all. Not I at all. I've heard from people that they appreciated that it still had the flavor of your father-in-law because it's in his words. It's him. It's not me. I li uh, like I said to you, this interview is, is, is him. It's, you know, and, um, and uh, you know, maybe towards the end of this interview, I'll t tell you about some of my thoughts about expanding upon this and getting this. Uh, I mean, for example, the secular world even our world, even our generation, second, third, fourth generation, we're getting further and further away from the atrocities of World War II. My own grandchildren, the younger ones, didn't really know him. Mm -hmm. We need to get the people to understand the, the greatness of Claudius' there in, 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 during the war. Um, one of my dreams, and we're looking for funding now, and I discussed this with uh, Rabbi Zlotowicz at Artscroll, one of my dreams is to rewrite the book for secular Jews, for, mm -hmm. for Yidin, maybe not even Yidin, but more modern, who do not understand the lingo of What's a chassid? What is, uh, what is treif? What is, you know, etc. And the, the book would be called The Murder of Three Million Through the Eyes of One. People don't understand. What do you mean six million? How can they fathom what six million is? Take a, a, a sports arena, I, I don't care, Barclays Center, Madison Square Garden, the Prudential Airlines, I don't, I don't care. 
Prudential Airlines? No, it's a Prudential Center. Used to be Continental Airlines. Used to Continental Airlines, Airlines. okay. MetLife um, Stadium. Right, well, well, MetLife is, is you're talking about uh, 90,000, maybe take 20,000, take a stadium that has 20,000. If Chas Vesholm, there would ever be a disaster at an arena like that for 20,000, I mean, we wouldn't, be, we wouldn't stop talking about it for, for, for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. So, six million wasn't 20,000. Take 20,000, do five stadiums, you still only be 100,000. Do the math till you get to a million, and if you count one, two, three, four, it's, it's an impossible way to even think about it. And that's why there were three million Polish Jews who were killed and the murder of three million through the eyes of one should resonate with these people. Um, we're, you know, we're actively looking for major funding. This is obviously not, you know, not something uh, that's, that's simple to attain. We're talking mm-hmm. about government, we're talking about, because there are a lot of people, excuse me, there are a lot of people out there who really want to get this message out um, and, you know, my, my wife very often would say, sure they suffered, and he suffered, but he never used to say, they beat me. He used to say, they haben uns geschlagen, they beat us, everything was in us. I mean, there's a story in the book. He was in the Warsaw Ghetto. It was freezing cold. It was snow all over the place. He volunteered to shovel the streets, so that his father, Rebleza Gershon Friedensen, didn't have to do it. He went, he lined up, they smacked him around, they beat him, they took off his coat, he shoveled for 10 hours straight. This is not a person like, you know, a 220 pound bodybuilder. Mm-hmm. He was a, a, a very frail, uh, thin individual. and and and. And then they beat him when he finished 10 hours later, and they said, come back tomorrow. Of course, he, somehow or another, Hashem gave him the thought, he gave a fake name, he gave a fake address. He didn't show up. He couldn't show up. He was in bed for a week. He couldn't move for a week. Would you or I have been able to do this? I, 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 I so met- where did he get that strength of spirit? And he was a giant of spirit during the war, and after the war he had the ability to talk about things, which is an interesting point that many of the survivors could not open up. And he seemed to have that ability to put it all out there. He was never inhibited about it. I'm not sure the answer. I can tell you that he certainly had an upbringing growing up in the house of Lazy Gershon Friedensen who was killed in the Warsaw Ghetto at age 42. Mm-hmm. So everything you heard about Lazar Gershon Friedensen and his work in Ascanus and the Agud and everything, all was done before. Be, in, in an yeah. ama- right, before, before. Um, I, I, I don't really have the, the total answer, but I could tell you in terms of surviving and their will to survive, um, Rabbi Fryam Waxman, who is, aside from being uh, a, a, a rub of mine, he's a personal close friend since uh, we, we grew up together, his, his brothers and, and, and I. And I mentioned, when he called me after he read the entire book, and he said to me, he complimented the book, I says, you know, Rabbi Ephraim, 
I don't think you and I could have lasted a day. And he said, a day? An hour we wouldn't have lasted, an hour. That's how he responded. So it's, that's a hard answer. I, I don't know the answer, but he definitely dedicated himself from the minute he was able to get out of bed in, in, in the hospital in Buchenwald, where he was liberated by the American army, and uh, Lieutenant Birnbaum sure. uh, said, Vidui with him. Of mm -hmm. course, he didn't, he says, I don't know why you're saying Vidui. He says, well, when was the last time you said Shema? Say Shema, I said Shema this morning. I mean, he wasn't going anywhere, but he, he, I, I can't answer how he was able to physically survive. I guess there was just a, a, a certain mental spirit that he had. I could tell you that there's a vart that uh, they say, they quote from the Belzer Rebbe, that every survivor had two malachim watching over him. So we in our family, we say, my shver must have had four, you know, not two, four. And uh, so how he did it. And then the minute he was able, he worked in Agudas Yisrael of Munich. He started the Aguda uh, in, in Europe. He was in, in places called Feldefink and Lansing and in Munich. And when he came to America in 1951, um, he was hired by the Aguda at the behest of the head of the Maetzis Gedolei Torah at that time, Ruven Grzovsky. And Ruven Grzovsky felt that we were losing the survivors to the secular Yiddish press. And we needed to put a a, a, a balance, a counterbalance to the secular Yiddish press. And that's basically how the Yiddish art in America began. There was a Yiddish art in Europe. This was here in America. And um, Mike Tress hired my Schwer at the behest of uh, River Ruingrzowski. And how and, many years did he, did he carry oh, that role? Well, four, 430 issues of the Yiddish art. Um, he was he worked, a writer before he was hired for that? Did he... Was Yiddish he writer. It was he was a, a Yiddish writer? Uh, yeah, he did it in Europe. He mm -hmm. did it in Europe. Um, how many years? He came here in 51, and he was Nifta in 2013, and he never stopped. I mean, even after he had a stroke, and even after he lost most of the sight in one, in, 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 in one of his course. eyes, and etc., he would still, uh, we would read him manuscripts, and he would correct manuscripts by listening. Uh, at one point, we had a big screen for him where mm -hmm. he was able to to uh, with a, a magnify uh, the sun. Then it reached a point where he couldn't do that either. But um, he never stopped. He never stopped. And, uh, and what's I, interesting is also English was not his mother tongue. Not at all. He, he came over to America not knowing a word of English, right? Pretty much. Pretty much. Pretty much. But he was good at languages. Well, obviously he was, which was what I'm getting at is that in later years, by the time I, I, I got to know him, you know, from hearing his speeches at the convention. He felt very comfortable speaking English. He was very articulate. And, and you know, he didn't seem uncomfortable about that. He was a smart man. Um, one of the ways he survived in, in, in Poland uh, was the fact that he was fluent in German and in Yiddish and in Polish and he acted as a translator uh, in a slave labor camp called Starchowitz, uh for the head of the camp, whose name was Bruno Papa. Uh, I can say this without any inhibitions that Bruno Papa was 
a chassid shalhu ma'isa'ilam, one of the chassidu ma'isa'ilam. Um, it's highlighted in the book. It's you in the about book. That. It's the stories. Yeah. And, uh, uh, Is that the Simchas Torah story? That's one of the right, stories. One it's of, one of yeah. the stories. Simchas Torah story and, and Pesach, Matzis on Pesach. And even when they had typhus, how he brought oranges to my mother-in-law and fed her oranges uh, to, to, to have her fight uh, these diseases. He was, he was an amazing, amazing, I mean, matzahs for Pesach? How in the world did they get flour? It's all, it was, you know, all, all a, a chain of nisim um, for people, and they did it, and they did it. They, they baked matzahs in 2,000 degree ovens that they were using to, 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 to manufacture arms or, you know, for, for the war effort, for the Nazi war effort. You know, you put in the, 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 the little piece of, of flour for three seconds and pull it out before it's burned to a crisp. And they did, they had. And, and, uh, and uh, yeah. One of, we never found out what happened to Bruno Papa at the end of the war. We have no idea. Uh, some of the family think he was sent to the front, like most of the, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was a member of the SA, not the SS, which is also paramilitary. And he didn't wear a gun. He didn't beat anybody. He was, uh, you know, and there's story after story. And the, they were there for approximately two years in the slave labor in Stachowicz. And from there they went, from Stachowicz, they went to Auschwitz. And um, How many camps was your father in law all together? What's the total? At least five. He was in, he was in, it depends how you call camps, because Sachowicz was slave labor, but then he went to, he went to Ordruf, that's the famous Schindler's List, uh, he says that was the worst of all. Mm-hmm. No food, they beat you, they made you run all day long, dogs biting at your, at your legs. He was, uh, he, he went, he, he, the main thing, first he went to Auschwitz, and then he was there for a while, and the book is full of stories of how he survived Auschwitz with Tzadikim who helped him, uh, Tzadikis who helped my mother-in-law, Rebetzin Orleon, Sarotskin Orleon. Um, uh, the, the, all these stories are, are in the book. Uh, and if you didn't buy it yet, it's about time. Get out of, finish this interview and go buy it. Okay. Um, my favorite story in the book, which I okay. actually I wrote after the book came out, is about the sweater, the sweater. It's an amazing story. If you could tell, for those who didn't read the story, it's indescribable. It's funny how you say it's your favorite story. I, I, uh, there are so many stories. Um, when he was in Auschwitz and he was working with, with uh, another tzaddik of his, I think his name was Burstein, Burstein, um, Aviezer Burstein, um, and he came to my father-in-law and he said that uh, when they were cleaning, doing detail, cleaning detail near the women's camp in Auschwitz, a young teenager seemed like, you know, asked for a sweater. It was freezing cold in, in Poland and Auschwitz, and he, uh, they, they were most enough to get her a sweater, and, you know, they had, they were cleaning barracks and they found a sweater and they put it under the, under the clothes and they went and he, this Avieza, gave it, gave it to the lady and he comes back with tears going down his eye and he still had the sweater. And my Shreya said, what happened? 
he says, she didn't want a sweater, she wanted a siddur. She wanted a machsa, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur was coming up and she, wanted, she, she thought that maybe in the men's camp they might be able to have some, some sort of safer. And she was asking for a siddur, not a sveda siddur, sounds very similar. And he said, I'll try and get you, but take the sweater. No, if I take the sweater, you're not going to come back. I need you to bring me the siddur. Uh, the heroes, they were, they were heroes. My friend David Hoffman wrote a book, Heroes of Spirit. I mean, they were heroes. They were heroes. And that they, you know, the, the, the topic, uh, the title, Faith Amid the Flames, which was coined by my good friend Menachem Lubinsky, Rabbi Menachem Lubinsky. Um, this was, I don't know, when we were doing a, a Holocaust uh, project when video was on VHS. That's mm-hmm. another thing that you won't know about. And, um, and, um, when I asked him if I could use that name, he says he can't think of anyone more appropriate uh, mm-hmm. t- of the word faith amid the flames. That's exactly what he personified. Emuna amidst the biggest torture. And, um, you know, Baruch Hashem, I, I, I feel very satisfied that I was able to do this for him. Um, and uh, we're going to c- continue. Continue. Talk for a moment. You worked for the Agoda. You knew Rabbi Scherer, Very for well. example. Um, talk about the relationship that your father-in-law and yourself had with people like Rabbi Scherer and how they helped him further his mission. Rabbi, I consider Rabbi Scherer to be uh, my Rebbe in Askanis. Um, I worked for him for 18 years. Um, my associate rabbi was Rav Shmuel Bloom. He should live and be well. Um, and Rabbi Sher was, was, first of all, he was dedicated to no end. Um, his relationship with my father-in-law was amazing in that here you had this American orator, who you know, English writer, and yet his best friend was Yassel Friedensen. And he didn't do much without conferring with Yassel Friedensen. The people who know, know that all the Sheris HaPleiti Yidin who joined the Aguda in those years came as a result of the efforts of Maishver. Um, certainly once they were there, Rabbi Sherer knew how to keep these people, and that was the building up of the Aguda all those years. Um, it's a very famous story, uh, I consider it famous, where uh, Rabbi Sherry used to write in the Siddur Shavart, but he, he didn't write it. The, the, my Shver wrote it, but they mm-hmm. would discuss it and everything. And one day in the office, before I uh, joined the Aguda, um, they were writing this article, and Rabbi Sherry uh, picked himself up to, to get ready to leave, and my Shver said, Rabbi Shara, we have to do some more on this. And Rabbi Shara said, It's good enough. And my Shver says, Ooh, didn't you always teach us that good enough is not good enough? <laughs> so took off his jacket, sat down. They stayed there for another hour till it was perfect. So the relationship between uh, Yosef Friedensen and Moshe Scherer 
was extremely special, extremely special. Uh, um, I, my work for Rabbi Scherer, I never knew what I was going to do next. He would come in, sit down in my, in my office. What was, your, what was your official job description at the time? Official or what my job description was? People, till today, people have no idea what I was, what I was supposed to do. My title was, I don't even know what my title was. Maybe I was in development. Um, um, I, I, did, I did basically whatever needed to be done. Um, I had several titles. At, um, I, uh, Rabbi Shara would come in, sit down, cross his leg, put his, let's say, the Jewish Observer has been losing money for the last 10 years. I need you to take over the management of the Jewish Observer. And I worked for 20 years together with Rav Nissen Wolp and Oliver Shalom. Mm -hmm. And I cannot tell you how much I miss that man. Rabbi Wolpen was he was such a wonderful person, both behind the desk and not behind the desk. And um, um, we worked on the Jewish Observer, which was, which was massive. Uh, in terms of the Siyam Hashas in 1990, uh, when uh, Shmuel Yosef um guaranteed Rabbi Sharer that if he gets a dozen of Madison Square Garden, if they lose any money, he will make up for the loss of money. That's when Rabbi Sharon asked me, I went to Madison Square Garden. Um, I found out at that time that it was not available. This is 1990, the circus had it, it was April 1990. The Ringling Brothers, right? Ringling Brothers, Barnum Bailey Circus. And I did some research and I found out that, uh, I knew that Moshe Reichman, Oliver Shalom, was negotiating with building a new Madison Square Garden in the rail yards, which never happened, mm -hmm. but there was a little G&W uh, on the logo, which stood for Gulf and Weston, which uh, was Moshe Reichman. I said to Rabbi, I came back, I said to Rabbi Shara, Rabbi Shara, we can't get it, the date, but if you call Moshe Reichman, I'm sure some things could happen. A day didn't pass by that uh, the president of Madison Square Garden, I think his name was Mendelssohn, showed up for lunch with Rabbi Sherer in the office, and he walked out, and Rabbi Sherer walks him afterwards to the elevator, and I said, no, he says, well, there's a legal stipulation that they can buy out the circus for that date. And I said, no, so we bought out the circus, and that's how that 1990 CM ended up in Madison Square Garden. And, you know, after that, 1997 was Nassau Coliseum, 2005, Continental Airlines Arena, Javits Center, Madison Square Garden, and of course, 2012 and 2000, and January 20. 1st of, the, of 20, uh, MetLife Stadium, uh, which was, uh, like I said, a lot of fun. You can, you can translate that word fun any way you want to. <laughs> But um, it certainly was, was, was... How much sleep did you get ahead of the CMHS? Tell, tell us the truth. I, I, I don't want to say that I stayed up. I stayed up whatever had to be done. Um, I even, there was, a, there was a possibility of sleeping overnight at the stadium, you know, a few nights beforehand. It just wasn't necessary. Mm -hmm. It was done. The staffing was great. The... the, the, the 
The staff at MetLife Stadium is fantastic, from the president and CEO down, Ron Vandeveen, uh, straight down. I mean, you know, I dealt only with the heads of each department, and um, um, we also had a, an events uh, uh, company that, you know, we sub-hired or hired to do a lot of the, like the staging and the, some mm -hmm. of the lights and the, some of the sound, etc. So it was great. It was great. I actually I did sleep. I did sleep. I actually did. The night after the CM, I didn't sleep too well. It was like... You were on a high. I don't know if the word is high, but it was, uh, my, my brain was definitely on an overload. But other, other than this book, would you consider your involvement as CEO of the CMHS to be your crowning achievement? How do I know? <laughs> How do I know? How do I know? Something small like, and when there's a family of from people today because of Jep, who came to mm -hmm. Borough Park in the, in the 1970s, and today they have children and grandchildren and, 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 and are learning in Kolel. How do I know? It's not for me to judge. Sure. It's for the Rabbani Shalom to judge. But I so go true. back to my, my thoughts about Rav Pam. I have tremendous hakaras atoif to him for putting me on that understanding. And, and I hope the listeners here, if there are young listeners, to, to understand that you know, when you look, become diamond polishers, whatever it is, whatever it is in your life, you know, do something that you're going to be able to look back and feel an accomplishment on behalf of Klayisol, on behalf of the Rabbanish Lelem. So, so I was uh, going to ask that. You, you, you were exposed to world-class Askanim leaders. They were rebuilding the Jewish community post-World War II, 60s, 70s, 80s. And you obviously learned a lot from them. What message would you give to the younger generation? You're kind of like the bridge between them and, let's say, my generation, or even those younger than myself. What's the greatest piece of advice you ever got that you could pass on to them? Rabbi Sherer, I once asked Rabbi Sherer that question. And his response was, he thought for a second, he looked me straight in the face and says, don't just live for yourself, live for others. And that wrapped up the entire, the entire conversation on Askanis. I would say to the people out there, don't just live for yourself, live for others. Because, and if you live for others, you will, be, you will feel so much accomplishment. One of the things that bothers me, is that we don't really have training for Askanim. And I wish we could. Um, uh, I went to Yeshiva with Chaim David's Rebel. I mean, uh, uh, Tervidas, West Side boy, Tervidas boy, a lawyer. And look what he's done for Klai Yisrael. Now, if you, if you had your druthers, and let's say funding wasn't an issue, what, what would you do to cultivate a cadre of, of Askanim, of the next generation of activists, what would you do? I'd say we would discuss this on a different interview when I'd have some time to think about it, because uh, it, 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 it definitely, uh, it, it all boils down to, to money. If you're going, if, if you're raised with the idea 
that I have to become an accountant or I have to become a lawyer because I have to support a family and I have to pay tuition and, and everything. If money wasn't an issue, then, you know, the focus really should shift. Just like there's a whole training department for Rabbanim, through whether it's through Tarmasoro or through the Eshtas or this other, there should be an Askanis training program. Mm -hmm. And I believe it can be done. I believe it could happen. It would take a lot of uh, cash influx, but you know that's what I think needs to be done. And it, it bothers me. It bothers me because an Askin should be choice one, not, okay, I became an Askin because I failed in something else. Right. And by the way, I never consider myself an Askin. It just happened. I mean that. No, somebody, somebody once said to me, you're an Askin. I says, I am? Uh, that's not, I'm real, you know, basically, that's the way I feel. Do something, what Rabbi Sherrod said, don't just live for yourself, live for others. That, from Rabbi Sherrod, my Rebbe in Askanas, and Rav Pam, when he spoke about the diamond polishing, my, my, my real Rebbe, I think that's the message I would like, like to leave to Klai Yisrael. I think humbly that with all the comfort creatures that we have, I think young families, fathers and mothers, are more hairy today than they've ever been. And I think that that doesn't give enough open space in their mind to think more broadly. Young families are barely surviving financially. They're barely surviving just emotionally, getting through the day, taking care of their families, housing costs, tuition costs, different pressures, shidduchim pressures. It's, it, it's this unending race. And somehow in a weird way, I think that it, maybe in the 70s and 80s, things were calmer and maybe people were able to think more broadly. Do you think that's an accurate depiction? I agree with the first part, uh, the first part that, that it's very hard to survive in this day and age financially. Um, I don't know if it was easier in the 60s and 70s. I don't know if mm -hmm. that's true. Um, but you said if money wasn't an object, if somebody Correct. would come and say, well, I want to uh, put X amount of million dollars into, the, into, into this training and we would be able to, and if a person wouldn't have to worry about, you know, spending X amount of years uh, in, in, in training for a panasa, perhaps there, there would be more. It, it, it also needs dedication. There has to be a certain amount of dedication. You can't just say, okay, should I become an accountant, a lawyer, or an Askin? Even I'll admit, it doesn't always work that way. Mm -hmm. So, um, um, I, 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 you know, in reality, I don't know if it's ever going to happen. It probably also takes a certain personality. I don't know if necessarily you could train everyone to have that No, ambition. you couldn't train everyone. You but have to take the right people and, and kind of channel their strengths and their interests towards working on behalf of the Klal. Absolutely, but there are people out there who can do this. There are people. There are people. I mean, there are some great people in Agodis Yisrael and who have dedicated their lives and have done tremendous, tremendous accomplishments. So, um, and uh, not just Agoda, Tarmasora, whatever. I mean, I, these are the ones that I'm more familiar with, but there, there, there are others. I mean, I would even say people who... Working on, in, in Art Scroll, the Masara Heritage Foundation, the people working on the Shas uh, and, and, and the, all these Svarim, 
I mean, is that not accomplishment? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, I, 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 uh, I was talking about a possibility of, a, of, a, of another book about, mm -hmm. about uh, uh, well, I'm not going to give it away, but uh, till, till it's official, until it's copyrighted. Um, but Agudis uh, Yisrael, Dafiomi, and Art Scroll, what better, you know, what better team can you, can you think about? You know? mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm not being, pay I'm not being paid extra for, to push Art Scroll. I'm just <laughs> letting you know that. But it's true. Everything I said today is true. Almost everything. But it is true. They, these entities and the people involved all have the same mission. To be Mekadoshem Shemayim, Lagdotar Ladir, to do what they can for the Jewish people. Absolutely. And, and to bring Nachas to the Rabbani Shloilon. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, circling back to the book you alluded to before that you have a plan to broaden and to do more. To tell us more about that. It, it would take a hefty uh, influx of sponsorship, which I don't think is going to come from the Frum community. Um, I have begun to make contacts with people who have contacts with the secular community. Uh, uh, there, uh, whether it's, I mean, for, uh, for example, the book itself. The book should be in the hands of 10,000 day school rabbanim and teachers throughout the United States. Every Rebbe, every teacher, every day school uh, teacher, Mora from fourth grade and up should have this book, should read this book, which will give them people a, 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 a derech of being able to give over of what happened. Not what happened, not the suffering, but the Kiddush Hashem within the suffering which is the most important part of, of my father-in-law's legacy. For, for people who are a little bit more secular or even not Jewish, then the book needs a total rewrite. Total mm -hmm. rewrite with, I mean, you can't just talk about Ludge without talking about the whole history of Poland and what was Poland and who lived in Poland and etc. And you can't just talk about Kristallnacht without talking about what the Nazi party was in the 1931, 32, etc., and how Hitler rose to power, etc. It's a total rewrite. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why, you know, we wouldn't, it wouldn't be faith in the flames, but as I said, the murder of three million through the eyes of one. And, it, you know, I'm not sure if it would be in, written in first person. Uh, as this book is. I'm That's not, what I was going to ask you. Did you consider or have you shared it, let's say, with the Holocaust Museum, with Yad Vashem, people who are involved in disseminating information about the Holocaust so that they could have this first-person account to enhance whatever message they're already the sending? The answer is yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. They all have it and they all appreciate it. With the Holocaust Museum in Washington, mm -hmm. Yad Vashem certainly um, and there are others, there are scholars, Holocaust scholars like Michael Berenbaum, um, um, another name, Raphael, Raphael Madoff, people who are, they all have the book, they've all uh, read it, they've all commented on it, but that's not the next step as to get it out to the secular world. Mm -hmm. It needs a rewrite. Um, and if anybody has any ideas, possibly, I don't know, maybe the claims conference. I don't know what, what that means these days. Um, 
there's been so many metamorphoses of you know of the of that so many changes. So if somebody has any idea, can reach me through Artscroll. As an example of uh, my father-in-law's message to the world, um, I think we have a 60-second clip that was recently recently shown on a meaningful minute. I think your viewers would appreciate, will appreciate, watching this short clip. Absolutely, let's take a look. There are many times that my children or my grandchildren are asking me, Saidi, what does it all mean? What do we, what do we all learn from this? Uh, what should we learn from this? Well, I have a lot of answers, but my main answer is, you just know that we are a unique people, an eternal people, indestructible. And not only that we are, we also should be. And this is our destiny to be a unique people in our behavior, our behavior with our fellow men, fellow friends, non-friends, with everyone, just to keep up the amuna that there's a British loyalty and that we have to try to be as close to him as possible. Any closing message as we conclude our conversation? Well, first of all, uh, my, you know, my appreciation to Art Scroll for publishing the book, my appreciation to you for inviting me uh, to come down uh, here today. Um, we've covered a lot. I can only say that um, um, I, I, I look forward to expanding upon this and other uh, type of, of, of books. And Hashem should bench us all. We should be gesund. And we should get rid of this terrible pandemic. And, um, and we should be zeuche, as they say in French, to a gesunte winter. Well, thank you. Firstly, for your decades of work on behalf of Klal Yisrael, many more decades, Amen. whether it's through the CMA Shas or like you mentioned, JEP and other wonderful undertakings. RCCS, don't forget RCCS, RCCS. and the Jewish Observer. So many different, uh, you've touched so many different aspects of the Jewish community. And right now, a special thank you for bringing your father-in-law's eternal message of hope and faith, the message of you know, Netzach Yisrael Lo Yishaker to us, to the younger generation, in a language that we understand and we could appreciate. And in Hashem, the book will continue to be well received. I appreciate that, Bracha Amen. Thank you very much. And Hatzlacha uh, to you and to everybody else here uh, in this beautiful, beautiful uh, art school, new headquarters in Rowway, New Jersey. Thank you.